This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you ever stood up in front of a group of people and made a speech? It may have been your 21st, at your wedding or perhaps at a funeral. Would you want to do it just for fun? Catherine Collette has written about speech making in The Competition. Welcome to Publish or Not, Catherine. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Jan. Well, this is certainly not a guide of how to do it. This is a most amusing story of what can go wrong. But before we talk characters, let's talk competition rules. This is not Toastmasters. This is speech makers. There seems to be a lot more devious ploys in speech makers. (laughs) That's true. I guess the book started through my experiences with Toastmasters, but I always wanted to set it in a similar environment, but I took a bit of creative license in exaggerating elements of Toastmasters, but really ramping up things like the money-making element. So Toastmasters, the original form is is all about self-improvement and learning to speak publicly. Speechmakers is about that, but it's been corrupted a little bit along the way. And so they're charging a lot of money for stuff. They're selling essential oils, uh, subliminal recordings, all of these sorts of things. Well, the past President Randall, he said, find your voice. But now it's more like, find your wallet. But now to become an accredited coach, you have to pay to do the course. And some of the course titles, Catherine, are just wonderful. Have you got a favourite one that you made up? Uh, I do. I had a lot of fun making up the titles of the different workshops and courses. I liked the three-day short course on member recruitment, Um, how to recruit new members, a Mormon case study. (laughs) The title of the book is The Competition, and it is the National Speechmakers Public Speaking Championship held in Brisbane. Well, we know that there's 16,000 members of speechmakers, 148 clubs, but there are only 120 who have made it here. So let's go from the general to the specific. The Glen Iris Club. Keith is described as bald head beige slacks and a pastel polo shirt but Keith does have skills he does Keith has uh, been involved in speech makers for a really really long time and he's really someone who is obsessed with winning and he is convinced that this year is going to be his year <laughs> he does care about the minutiae he had run a campaign on the correct font size for agendas and signage. (laughs) But he's married to Linda. She came to his last speech. Why was his wife unimpressed? She was very unimpressed. And Keith sees that as a cause of great fracture in their relationship. So he was given an impromptu speech that was about the love of his life. And he thought as a quirky twist, instead of saying the love of his life was his wife, Linda, he would say that it was speech making. <laughs> he's not a coach. He's a volunteer at the club and he's acting as a mentor to Frances. He sees her as prickly and argumentative. She's only 21. So why is she doing speech making? 
So Frances is a woman not too long out of high school. At high school, she was this straight A student. She was on the debating team. So she has a background in public speaking, but she's had a pretty big fall from grace. And we don't know what that is initially, but we find out as the novel uh, progresses and that story unravels. But she is in it 100% for the money. So there's a $40,000 prize on offer. And Frances is currently working in a supermarket delicatessen, a place that I also have worked. She sees it as a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, she certainly has the ability with words, but she really doesn't have any people skills, does she? Very critical of others. She is very critical of others. And she keeps right, she is prickly and argumentative, but I think that... Frances has a very hard exterior uh, uh, underneath. She's really a, a very nice person. <laughs> well, she's, I think she's filled with shame and that's the cause of that exterior. And so as the novel progresses, she sort of grapples with that. Well, we know that she's put herself in a predicament even to get from Glen Iris to Brisbane for the competition. So it's not only work-wise, but it's also her parents. What's she, what she done? So her parents have said to her, look, you know, you've been working in the deli for a while. Maybe it's time to to think about university or would you like to do a course? You could do floristry or all sorts of different things. And Frances uh, doesn't really want to do anything, doesn't really know what she would do anyway. So she thinks, oh, maybe if, if I win, not only do I win the money, but I can kind of prove to my parents, get them off my back and um, they'll let me live my life. And what has she said to the Delhi workplace? <laughs> so Frances's approach to attending the speech-making conference is rather than take annual leave, she is just calling in sick every day. <laughs> causes a few problems for her. She always imagines the worst. I'm going to read from The Competition by Catherine Collette. I tried to focus on my speech, imagining getting a good topic Imagine it going well, but the more I tried to imagine these things, the more the idea crept in that everything would go badly. There was so much potential for disaster. I could trip when I came on stage. I could fall over and break a leg. I could have a hostile audience. They might decide they didn't like me. What if someone heckled? It would be humiliating, but also potentially dangerous. Things could escalate. I heard of a comedian who told a joke and an audience member called out, can you catch, and threw an empty beer bottle at the comedian's head. So Frances is a, a woman who does take on a few extra worries. She does. I had a friend who was a psychologist and in the early days of writing the book, she had said to me that she sent some of her clients that had social anxiety to Toastmasters because it was a very welcoming space and a good space that felt pretty non-threatening really for, for someone to be in. So I think Frances has elements of that, definitely someone that struggles with anxiety. I like the way that, you know, why she did it. And uh, this is another quote. A lot of people thought public speaking was something to be afraid of, like falling off a cliff. Frances clearly understood it was more like abseiling. The fear was there, but mostly it was excitement. It is this two-way pull that adrenaline goes through when you're on the stage and have these people listening to you. Which I think is the evolution people have with public speaking. I mean, it's often cited as people's number one fear, but having been to public speaking clubs myself, 
that fear is really very surmountable. And though you may still get nervous and things before speeches, I think there comes a time when the excitement, like it does actually flip, that the fear dissipates and it's a rush. It really is. It is more like abseiling the the more you do it, I think. Well, this is interesting because there's something else that's that Francis is finding rather scary. Another quote, I saw a face, someone I recognised or thought I did, and as that glimpse slipped into the corner of my eye and almost instantly out again, I felt a shudder run through my whole body. My skin contracted around my ears and neck and tiny shivers raced down my back. Who's causing Francis that type of fear? So Frances sees on her very first day and hopes that she doesn't see her former best friend. So Rebecca is a girl that uh, they were thick as thieves throughout primary school, but their friendship fractured during high school. And so that's uh, that fracturing, that high school experience of changing allegiances within friendship circles and how pendulum-like they can almost be. It's a big part of the book and relates to some of the reasons that Frances is how she is. Well, Rebecca was also in the same debating team, but she's only there as a volunteer. When Frances has to buddy up with somebody, proximity means it's Neil. What does she think of him? (laughs) Neil, I think Frances's first impressions of Neil, who is probably in his late 20s, is he's a bit underwhelming. It's the kind of guy that has a a phone fixed to his uh, belt. Neil's mum is his coach and and she is really the reason that he's there. She's a public speaking coach with no clients. So Neil is the one that she's hoping to become the the pin-up boy for her business. Neil's mum is always talking about the fact that Neil is a doctor. He's in fact a doctor of accounting. So there's a bit of playing around there with the... uh, the type of doctor that Neil is assumed to be. Frances is is rather cross about this when she finds out that he's not in medicine. He's he's in accounting and she calls it him a psychologist for people who can't add up, which was very clear. (laughs) The subjects of Neil's speeches are also unusual. As you said, his mother is his coach. So this uh, late 20-year-old is talking about invisible women and menopause. So you wonder what he's doing there. And when you find out, oh, Catherine Collette, so much humour, as is the explanation of a lifeboat being inflated inside an airline cabin. But by whom and why, you'll have to read this book. So back to the seriousness of the competition. By day one, half of those 120 competitors have been eliminated. What do the speechmakers have to do on day two? So day one was the impromptu competition. That's the more difficult but a shorter speech. So you knock a lot of people out and then you have your prepared speech. And the prepared speech, I really laboured over the prepared speeches in this book because I had gone to Toastmasters competitions myself, both in competing as a competitor but also to watch. And the speeches that people give, particularly in the latter rounds of those competitions, are really uh, they're based on personal life experiences and they're really inspiring so you had to I had to come up with stories that were really meaningful for the characters but also what was the message of each of those speeches so those speeches are important on that second day yes 
Well, day three has its climax with the winning speech, but more so with what's happening with the presidency of the whole speechmakers. Past President Susan's father has died. Why is Roger seen to be the next best president? <laughs> Roger is, is someone that is sort of lined up to potentially take over the helm of speechmakers. Speechmakers, as we sort of spoke a little bit about in the beginning, had started out in a, a very pure form, but has been a little bit corrupted over time. And Susan and Roger are sort of conspiring to, to further that process and to sort of benefit themselves. And I guess for me, those two characters really represent or are a commentary on that self-improvement industry that we start to see. Because self-improvement is a really good and positive thing, but the monetizing of self-improvement means there's an incentive to make people feel less improved and desire more products and services to improve. And Roger's claim to fame was a book called The Seven Steps to Standing Ovations. <laughs> Each <laughs> chapter is owned by a character. Alternatively, it's Francis and Keith. Now, this is clever management of the plot here. Well done. The structure of the novel nearly killed me. I, I started out writing it across a nine-month period so it went from when Francis first joined a club to the final but I got a grant to go to the International Toastmasters Public Speaking Championship and conference and that was such a full-on and fantastic experience with thousands and thousands of people from all over the world that I thought I really have to book write the book across a, a similar time period of three or four days and that constraint was really nice to work within Mm. Um, but I did have to manage points of view and have really strict timelines and agendas almost for when things were happening. Well, most people have obsessions. Catherine Collett has written about those who take on speech making in the competition. This delightful read has a mixture of memorable characters who find happiness despite themselves. Thank you very much, Catherine. Oh, thank you, Jan. It was wonderful to chat. Cancer is an insidious disease, but our attitudes to death can help us alleviate the suffering and offer us an element of grace and dignity, if not humour. Megan Albany's novel, The Very Last List of Vivian Walker, provides us with an enlightening perspective on how to approach a cancer diagnosis. So, Megan, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. It's lovely to be here. Your novel begins with lists and I find it an intriguing conceit because you've got three lists there from three of the main characters, Vivian, who's suffering from cancer, Clint, her husband, and Ethan. But I'm just wondering what these lists reveal about people's concerns and focus at such a time. Well, I think lists, especially for women, are fundamentally about trying to control our lives, um, in particular sometimes try to control our husbands, our children, um, but in general our life. And, of course, when you get a cancer diagnosis, everything that you think you are in control of goes out the window. You, you're no longer in control. And um, I've seen personally in my life time and again that people want to wrestle that control back. They, they're not happy about not being in control and they'll do whatever it takes. Um, and lists are how we all run our lives these days. We're all so busy. So... 
and you're busier again when someone's dying. So it's not the time to let go of your, your fundamental lifeline, I guess. But Vivian's list begins with clean the fridge. It's ordinary. Well, life is ordinary and extraordinary at the same time. And I think that, again, when crisis strikes, get cleaning. Clean that fridge. Get it over and done with. Scrub the bathroom. It's a great way to get your emotions out of the way. But also we do hang on to those things. I mean, life is all the minutiae. Life is all the little daily things. When, when someone goes, we miss all those little things, all those crazy quirks people had. And, and, and we do want to stay in control um, and we'll do whatever it takes, I think. Her husband, Clint, has his list. But in many ways, these are things more for Vivian than for himself. And he corrects himself as well. You know, have sex. Oh, no, no, make love to my wife. People have read the book and they go, oh, poor Clint. And I think poor men sometimes because as women, we really do try to control the heck out of it. And he's, you know, I think a lot of men really do want their wife to be happy, but it's a big job making us happy it's not as easy as it looks (laughs) and I think that he never gets it right and I feel sorry for him but I also feel frustrated by him because he doesn't get it right so it's that thing that I think plays out in so many relationships where fundamentally people can love and hate each other at exactly the same time with exactly the same intensity but can you ever get it right where cancer is concerned Well, not if you're a man and not if you're Clint, you can't. (laughs) Um, I think when it comes to cancer, people get really worried about cancer and death and all those topics that no one wants to talk about. I think what you can get right is you can just continue to be yourself and love imperfectly because you're not going to suddenly become perfect if someone's got cancer. Your family aren't going to start to behave. I've seen all sorts of fabulously bad behaviour in hospitals and you're actually under more stress. So we think, okay, someone's dying. Now I'm meant to suddenly be the Dalai Lama and Oprah combined in one body. It's just not going to happen. You're actually going to be the worst version of yourself because you're under a lot of stress when things are going wrong. And actually that's not the time to do that. Then there's the child's perspective. Ethan, build a robot, but his are more internally focused, really. Well, it doesn't matter what you say to kids, whether you're sick or whatever's going on, they will stay focused on the things that they focused on. And I think also kids don't get the big picture and can't get the big picture. For a child to imagine his mother's going to die is is not possible. He wants to just keep focusing on um, robots and everything he needs to do. But in a weird way, that's what his parents are doing as well. They're just focusing on distraction And distraction works from the time you've got a toddler to the time you die, and that's why we all do it. Because sometimes life's too hard to not be distracted from. This gets us onto the topic of the lives they are leading and the way you describe Vivian's life. I have lived averagely, loved tepidly, and managed to sometimes get the washing on the line before it started to smell from having been forgotten in the machine. This is really a doer picture of life in many ways. Well, actually, one of my favourite sayings, I should work out who it is, but it's most men live out their lives in quiet desperation, and I think most women do as well. And it's not that there aren't these moments of fabulousness, but we do all have to do the washing. We do all have have relationships that aren't like they are in the movies. We all have those frustrations with life, the things that we have to do, and we all know we should be doing something different or think we should be doing something different but maybe we shouldn't maybe we should just try to 
you know, maybe we should all get a round of applause every time we get the washing on on time. But there's something pathetic in some ways about Vivian's life in the truest sense of the word. I mean, her very conception, her father was unfaithful, her marriage to Clint. He won't cheat. He's got a good head of hair. He can give you the kid you've always been banging on about. And he still has some kind of relationship with his mother. What's not to like? This isn't romantic. It's not grand. How would you describe ordinary? How would you describe reality? Well, I think ordinary is the thing you don't see on the movies. You don't see it on Netflix. You don't see it on Facebook. Ordinary is the stuff that we deal with every day. And most marriages aren't Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie having some intense, amazing thing. People do settle. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that we don't celebrate mediocrity enough. We don't celebrate that all those little things matter. Maybe we all need to celebrate more what we are doing and that we are enough because I think most people don't feel like they're enough. And you are. If you're loving to the best of your ability, even if that's a pretty, you're doing a pretty shit job of it, well, you're doing the best you can given where you've come from, what your life is, where you find yourself and I think that in this aspirational society we live in, people are depressed because they don't feel like they're meeting the mark. Or maybe we need to say, you're trying. This is the mark. The ordinary, in many ways, is what needs to be celebrated. Absolutely. I remember I had a bus driver when I was at school. He remembered all the kids' birthdays. He'd give you golden books. And, you know, he was a lovely, lovely man. And years later, I went back to Liverpool where I grew up and he was still there driving the bus and still greeting every single person with a smile and getting off the bus and helping people. And I thought, well, what a fabulous life that is. Viv, unfortunately, can't do that, but she's not so joyful and not so lovely, but she's still doing the best. Given where she's come from, she's still doing the best. And I really want I, mean, I want people to start to have empathy for people that from the outside look like not that nice people because everyone's got a story and they've all within that story. They're doing the best they can, I believe. Where tragedy and comedy intersect is with Ethan. He's giving a presentation at school. The other reason I know the doctors are wrong is because mum loves me too much and has always said there's no way she'd leave dad on his own to look after me because he's bloody useless. And it's a moment of great comedy said publicly in front of an audience. And yet the reality is in the background there where Clint is going to have to explain to Ethan and really that's where that juxtaposition of tragedy and comedy occur most powerfully I think. I think comedy and and tragedy go so beautifully together because one we need to laugh when we're in tragedy but two I think that life is a kind of a weird comic thing and if you if we tell the truth in an extreme way I think that's where that's where the comedy is and when you put two things together that shouldn't go together for me that's where the best comedy comes from that kind of observational humor but Ethan's in denial which is something that a lot of people are in denial whether it's about life or death we all live in denial quite a lot and and no one wants to break that bubble and especially we don't want to break that bubble to a child and say well this is the reality and the reality is that Clint probably will be a bit useless once Viv's gone. Like, he won't have someone writing this. He's going to get it all wrong. He's going to forget the lunches. He's going to not sign the notes for the tuck shop. There's so many things he's not going to do. He'll forget the shopping. The bills will be overdue. As much as Viv drives him crazy with the list, she's kept the world turning. And when she goes, 
Clint's going to have to find what life's like without a wife driving him crazy, writing lots of lists. You touch on practical things like having to write a will, but also then on elements like spiritual enlightenment. And you've got a sort of upbringing confronting a present-day reality, Vivian's attitude towards religion. Most people have had a very mixed relationship with religion. A lot of us, um, certainly in this country, were probably brought up religious. And then we're also, we've got all the whole new age thing. And it really is just quite a smorgasbord of choices that you need to make. And the problem with when people are dying is there's an expectation that suddenly, oh, I'm dying, great, now I'm suddenly spiritually enlightened and I've got the whole thing figured out. It's just not true. People die the way they lived and if they're confused, they're often confused till the end. If they have faith, sometimes that can stay, sometimes it can go. Um, it's not it's not a one-size-fits-all, you're dying and so, you know, dib, 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 dob, 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 now you know what you're doing. Like we don't know what we're doing. And it's confusing and death is confusing and, and people will hang on to whatever things they need to hang on to to help and sometimes that's comedy, sometimes it's religion, sometimes it's sarcasm, sometimes it's a whole lot of lists to help you, you know, just feel like you're still in control even when you're not. You touch on the reality as well in the latter chapters the loss of speech, the difficulty swallowing, it's very physical. Yeah, death is physical and I think we need to talk about that. I think we need to acknowledge that it's not like it is in the movies. It doesn't necessarily happen quickly and easily and with everyone with hair and makeup done as standing around your bed looking fabulous, including the person who's dying. And we need to make that not scary. It is the letting go of control and it's a letting go of the physical. It's a letting go of the body. And that is confronting, but it's also part of it. And I think, you know, that's what death is. Death is letting go. And, and none of us want to let go. We all want to hang on kicking and screaming. But there is still, there's still beauty in that and there's still, there's still humour that can be found, even in the darkest of times. I think humour can help so much. And we want to, um, you know, we want to talk about death and let people have the whole range of emotions. You're not just meant to be sobbing. You're not just meant to be laughing. You're not just meant to be feeling happy or depressed or any of those emotions. It's a roller coaster. And so is life and so is death. Last but not least, then, the ending, if I'm allowed to give it away, you've got a lovely little phrase or two phrases, in fact. It is done, which is a sort of very religious connotations, and the line, da, 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 that's all, folks, and the cartoon. What are you doing at the ending here? <laughs> oh, look, I love to manipulate people's emotions, so I'm just trying to make them laugh and cry at the same time. That's my goal there. But I grew up Catholic, but I also grew up a huge fan of Monty Python and watching cartoons, and I think that's all part of part of life, life and death. And I think that Clint was, had, had, of course, swapped the television, which is where the, the Porky Pig line comes in, but... Why, why not? Why not let it all be a, a cartoon in the end? Like, let's not take it all so seriously. We're going to be sad anyway. Let's, have, let's, let's be sad and laugh at the same time because if you've ever been to a wake, they're the best wakes. And we talk about all the really annoying things about people when they're, after they're gone. So let's celebrate that while they're alive, I reckon. Well, to find out what there is to celebrate in an ordinary life, you need to read The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. The author is Megan Albany, and it's a Hachette release. So, Megan, thank you very much for talking with me today. 
You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me, David. Why should you subscribe to 3CR? Michael McGurn, educator, thinker and author, says this about 3CR. Oh, David, thank you. And thanks to 3CR, it's an oasis in a desert. We can only agree. Please subscribe to 3CR. It's as easy as ringing 9419 8377 and press 1 to subscribe. Please do it now. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.